Welcome to The Observatory. I'm Jessica Helfand. And I'm Michael Beirut. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. On each episode, we talk about a few topics that are on our minds and in the air. Our show today is sponsored by SAPI, the preeminent producer of fine-coated paper in North America. The New York Times flew a drone over Greenland this summer, and they included the footage in a recent interactive story in the Times that zooms into the Arctic landscape to show how Greenland is melting away. This sort of will remind Harry Potter fans of what it was like when Harry Potter used to pick up the newspaper and an image would be moving. They can now actually do that in the New York Times. But back to Greenland, how do we know that climate change is actually coming or that it's here? And how can we help people understand and are there ways to show it that might change people's minds or spark real action in terms of the enormity of, of this problem? Uh, Michael, I don't know if you saw this story, but it reminded me of the Charles and Ray Eames power of 10. Yeah, yeah, very much. The sort of, I mean, the, um, the bird's eye view thing and everything else. And I think what was interesting about the powers of 10 um, is that um, that film is basically non-ideological on the surface. It's really just said to be... I think explicitly at the top about the relative size of things in the universe, right? Um, but it does actually make this larger point about people's interconnectedness, about our interconnectedness with the world, with the, the Earth we live on, the position that Earth has in the universe overall. So it deals with these very profound issues that are kind of profound philosophical issues, even though it doesn't have a, a, a specific instructional point that's supposed to. Uh, lead you to action, which I think is really what people keep trying to figure out when it comes to climate change. What's the way to diagram that that would actually be as compelling as some of the most compelling images we've seen in the past that sort of provoked, um, you know, widespread opinion change. Well, and I think your comment about the past is an interesting one because the temptation is to create something that's shocking and that shocks people into action. Um, But in fact, a little education is not really a bad thing. And the World Resources Institute has this wonderful site. Um, They've got this thing called the Center for Advanced Information Technology that's done these wonderful diagrams of climate change. But the one that I found the most compelling was that there's a video and a series of diagrams that show climate change over time. So you can really track things like greenhouse gases and emissions, not only historically, but by country. And what this means is that, you know, the worst emissions in the mid-19th century were, of course, in the UK, which was the center of the um, Industrial Revolution at that time. So, you know, you could see what China's doing, you could see what the United States is doing. But I think somehow understanding empirically where these problems first came from, you realize it's not just that we're using our air conditioners too often or driving our cars too often. Right, that it's actually a much bigger set of consequences, and that's where design actually can, I think, make a difference by by breaking down the enormity of this problem into its component parts. Which is not to say that shock value isn't useful, but I think you know, to your point, the elucidation of powers of ten was that it broke it down into its component parts, and I think history does that too. Of course, shock value is useful, um, but I think that uh, designers' tendency is to start with the shock value and then scrounge around for images to provide the shock. You know, for instance, um, an image that's considered one of the first ones that was widely circulated as part of a campaign for social change was this uh, uh, diagram that shows the layout of the slave ship, the Brooks, uh, that was uh, circulated uh, starting in the 18th century. I mean, it just shows how efficiently you could get black slaves packed onto a ship, often laying 
being chained on their backs with no space between them, with 10 inches of space uh, between them and the uh, ceiling. And it just is horrific. And it's it's really, you know, it, the, the diagram itself doesn't say a single thing like this must stop or this is the horror of human slavery. Its horror is the fact that it just is a statement of fact. You know, if you wanted to pack lots and lots of people you were kidnapping to turn into slaves in the New World, this is how you pack them onto a ship. It was necessary to pack a lot of them onto ships because so many of them would die uh, during the journey that um, the more people you could get on the ship at the beginning, the, the higher amount you'd have to sell it out when you got there. And the whole thing to contemplate is just so awful and mercenary. This diagram sort of got, was circulated really widely by people who were um, supporting the abolitionist cause, first in uh, the UK and Europe and then in um, in the Americas and you know and as much as anything else is nothing more than a piece of information graphics that is so coolly horrifying that it just is amazingly powerful. And I think what you're saying, which is so true and resonates again to come back to the Eameses, is that the more you can actually unpack this information, its shock value is just what it is, right? I mean, it's just the, the scientific evidence that you're able to reveal is itself the most elucidating thing. I was looking a little bit at the, this, the, the Power of Ten history, and, and it turns out that the, all of the correspondence from the Eames office is at the Library of Congress in Washington. And they on their Library of Congress's exhibition website from when they actually shared this with the public a number of years ago, uh, they show this correspondence between a staff member in the Eames office and a scientist that actually looks at actually the kind of detail that the Eameses were interested in in revealing about, for example, cell structure. Like, And there's literally a drawing on top of this mimeographed letter. Michael, you're going to love this, that shows that, that, in fact, the mitochondria in the cell should actually be a little bit more milky, that it looks a little stiff, and there's this goofy little cartoon illustration on top of a typewritten manuscript. And, and I found that really uh, kind of a, a, an interesting moment in, in just thinking about all of this, which is that, you know, at any point we have the tools that we have to reveal the stories we have to tell them with. And, and the Eames is it's still remarkable that in 1977 they were able to make a film like this, and now the New York Times is able to show Greenland, you know, via drone photography. But in fact, they're both doing the same thing, which is zooming in, zooming out, trying to show a story in the most graphically circumspect way possible, which in a way, it's a very humanizing metaphor for design and for designers, which is just not not to use only typography or only shock value or only one thing, but to really walk around the problem and think about how you can visualize a solution. And and, the, and sort of the, the more three-dimensionally that you can think about ways of revealing a problem, there's there's incredible honesty to that. And it also presumes that more people can penetrate the story, right? Like there are more different ways in. Right, right. And I think part of the challenge that we have with climate change particularly is not only is it politically fraught, but it's also um, seems to be very complicated and describing outcomes that people can convince themselves are fairly remote. I think there are lots of people who you could send that drone video to and they would say, well, that's Greenland. I live in, you know, um, Akron. And, um, you know, and, and sort of like as long as they don't look outside and sort of see something bad happening to them, like that's going to happen by tomorrow morning, it's the whole thing just seems kind of abstract compared with the other pressures that uh, everyone has on their lives from day to day. And I think that in a way, part of the challenge that designers and people who deal with information display, part of what the challenge we really face is 
you know, how do you take really complex information, make it compelling, which often means making it simple in a way. We talked uh, one of our earlier episodes about this thing called the Doomsday Clock, which is a really powerful piece of information design created for and deployed by people who uh, work at a place called the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. And uh, what it does is sort of takes a ton of information about uh, nuclear proliferation, bioterrorism, and indeed climate change, and reduces it all to a single metric, which is how close we are to world annihilation, which then they express by moving a minute hand closer to or farther from midnight. They've been doing this continuously since uh, the late 40s, early 50s, and the power of it is a combination of the simplicity of it combined with the fact that it is really controlled by and set in effect by all this complicated information. And I think a really interesting challenge for uh, designers would be to sort of conceive something that's that simple, uh, that's that, you know, that has that kind of credibility, but also that sort of um, uh, accessibility that the clock has and do it on behalf of the crisis that we face with climate change. Well, it's certainly a more f- efficient way of um, magnifying the dire importance of atomic um, fallout fear to look at that one image than to look at any of the nuclear slide rules that were in my book on wheel charts. Where, and there were many of them, many of them produced in the 60s in particular, uh, kind of Cold War um, uh, little tokens of uh, how much time you had to get out of a building uh, after a nuclear blast that, that are quite beautiful. Yeah, and, and that's, that's, um, that's my favorite part of um, uh, Dr. Strangelove, too, uh, when uh, Dr. Strangelove in his wheelchair is asked how long it would take for the world to be safe after it was completely blown up by a nuclear war that in the movie is about to happen, you know, within an hour. And he withdraws from his pocket, uh, a, a you know, a little uh, a circular, uh, um, you know, uh, what do you call those things? A, a, a viola? What do you? Volvels. Oh, volvel. <laughs> Thank volvel. you, violas. That, no, that's a then he manipulates. Shape, I, I, I just remember thinking, oh yeah, that's <laughs> something that you would carry with you everywhere. You know, whenever you're going out, be sure to take you know your um, your easy guide to take your radiation dosage exactly. calculator. So in case the question comes up, you know. So that to me was just, I thought it was just right. How to impress a yeah, girl on a first date? <laughs> I had no idea. Although maybe Tinder needs to make a Volvel. I can just, you know, like turn, you know, instead of swiping, yeah, you yeah, can yeah, like rotate maybe, left. Maybe there's some, it'd be, it'd be interesting if there was some sort of, um, some sort of app that could be manipulated in a similar way for something like climate change. It'd be kind of a really an interesting thing. So I think that challenge is there. And um, what we don't need are posters with slogans, I don't think. That's right. Um, you know, I think it's really about kind of making the reality of the science um, in all its complexity just more... Uh, visible and more urgent to the people that are trying to make their minds up about this thing, trying to understand it, trying to come to grips with it. Right. And I would argue, uh, to come back to that New York Times drone, I'm no fan of drones, but I think that when you go to the front page of the New York Times on your browser and you see this thing that is moving, it is an unbelievably impactful way to get a message across that, uh, unfortunately, I do not think a still image conveys the same punch. Yeah, yeah, no, I think I think it's true. And, and, and with climate change, as the word change in it, change implies um, movement over time. And I think it's uh, very hard to visualize um, just with a single image, although God knows single images have been powerful too through our history. And now a word from our sponsor. Uh, the paper company Sappy North America has released volume six of The Standard, an educational resource for designers and printers around the world that shows how technical considerations can inform creative decisions. The Standard 
Six, takes a close look at bindery techniques, that all-important final step in printing. To learn more, visit na.sappy.com. That's na.sappi.com. Um, speaking of bindery techniques and the steps in printing, the all-important steps in printing, um, this might be a good time to bring up Observer Quarterly, our new print magazine. Uh, the inaugural issue of the quarterly is the acoustic issue. Uh, it's available in our shop, which is shop.designobserver.com, and also on Blurb. Uh, we will be doing four of these a year, as the quarterly name suggests. And uh, this is actually a very exciting thing for us because it's all new content. And initially, when we thought about doing a, a quarterly, Michael, as you may remember, we realized that we have a huge archive of articles. But coming off of the success of our first symposium last February, we had a lot of interest in the idea of looking at design as a kind of portal into this larger issue of sound. And so with that in mind, we set out to create this first issue, which is just out and available to all our listeners at the address I just gave. And we've got some other things, too. We've got our catalog of the 50 Books, 50 Cover Show, and we have anthologies of writings by William Drentel and writings by, with, and about Massimo Vignelli. Uh, these are drawn uh, largely from the Design Observer website archives. Beautifully designed, really well put together. Um, just sort of proves that uh, um, as great as a website can be as a way of accessing information, there's something satisfying and accessible in an entirely different way about holding a book in your hand. Uh, looking at these various pieces, and uh, we've actually... Uh, included not just the pieces, but some of the comments. Yeah, that's, I think, what makes them kind of uh, really unusual. Uh, back in the day when comments were a much more lively part of the site, uh, it also encapsulates, and I think uh, rightly so, captures a period in, in design history and blog history where our readers' comments were really part of an ongoing dialogue that is reflected in these books. Yeah, it, it really does come off in a way like uh, tr uh, you know a transcription of a... Uh, of a symposium, albeit one that was conducted entirely online, which I think is pretty cool. And our next symposium, which will take place in February 2016 in Los Angeles, will be on the topic of design and food. Uh, it's likely to be issue three. In the meantime, stay tuned for issue two, which will be out before the conference. Yeah, so you said the first one was about design and the world of sound, and uh, we had a um, interesting collision between those two worlds uh, uh, just recently. Canadian rapper Drake evidently is a fan of James Terrell. Uh, he went to uh, Terrell's show at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art last year, and um, he's got this new video out called Hotline Bling. I know when that hotline bling That can only mean and it looks as if it was filmed in a series of Terrell spaces. And our listeners know that James Terrell is famous for doing these uh, minimal spaces that are transformed by light, uh, often um, in a almost uh, hallucinogenic way where uh, you uh, lose sight of, uh, of gravity, of depth, of what's up, what's down. They're very contemplative, and the uh, contrast between these spaces and Drake's song is really fantastic. And I think the, the resemblance was so acute that... Uh, 
Uh, James Terrell issued a statement saying he wasn't involved with it. The statement is actually quite funny because it, it drops a couple of very knowing references about... Uh, that you wouldn't expect a 72-year-old <laughs> MacArthur winner to just have rolling off his tongue. I mean, if you could just pull back for a moment from the, the specifics of this artist and this uh, musician... You know, we live in a moment where hacking is part of our common parlance, where the sharing economy is how we self-identify. But the fact that flattery and imitation sometimes reveals itself in these kinds of visual tropes being being shared as evidence of some influence of someone else's work is suddenly seen as shocking. And and it's funny because it really, at the end of the day, I think gets to this question of, of who owns what, intellectual property. And for artists who, you know, who want to be influential, it's a really hard line to cross. If you've ever seen any of James Terrell's installations, you really are transformed by being in a space that is filled with color and it's about light and it's about adjusting your eyes to the light and it's a very immersive experience immersive in a different way than the greenland drone photos but immersive nonetheless and so the idea that somebody would come along and and feel that this was something that that could be somehow mapped onto another body of work is perhaps not so surprising i think what is surprising is that the difference between a 72 year old elder statesman in the art world and this you know young rapper um is pretty funny actually it's, it's actually not on as unprecedented as people seem to think it is. I mean, uh, a few years ago, Kanye West was quoted as saying that his um, muse for his uh, album, uh, Yeezus, was a Corbusier lamp he had bought. I think his quote was, this one Corbusier lamp was like my greatest inspiration. And um, it's a... Uh, but not his greatest inspiration. It was like his greatest inspiration. <laughs> no, it was his greatest inspiration. <laughs> no, but it's like, it's, and I think it's fantastic, actually. You know, the um, um, Kanye West says a lot of things that I think are very calculated to be preposterous and shocking. But the the lamp itself is actually really interesting. It's, a, um, it's an outdoor fixture that... Uh, I think he created for um, Shanagar, the uh, government buildings there, for public parks there. Very rough concrete, but kind of has a beautiful curve in it. And there's really, you know, I mean, there's you can really sort of see in a way the connection between um, the roughness of the material. The Kanye West, in fact, went on to say that, you know, it was, you know, it wasn't like designed to be a uh, collector's item. It just was designed to be a thing in a public park so it's effectively a free light for anyone that came into that park and uh you know he bought it you know from christie's or some such for you know a hundred thousand dollars or something and it, was, and it was something about where value comes from where you know how things are transformed over time there's a lot of interesting things there so i think uh, part of it is just you know the pleasure we take in the incongruity of these worlds colliding but also i think it just proves that um great designers and great artists actually have the capacity to to influence and inspire each other. I, I think Terrell, what he does with light and color and space is one of a kind and amazing, but I defy anyone that's ever been to one of his spaces to n- not, ha- not have some moment later, the next day, you know, 10 years later, where you, you're sort of considering a space and you sort of think, well, what would James Terrell do with something like this? Or just Right, and I think that, you know, the other thing that um, we haven't said, but I think you might agree with this statement, Michael, is that the video is actually really beautiful oh, yeah, and yeah. really minimal. And really, he doesn't mess with Terrell. He tries to evoke Terrell, but there's a, a, an extraordinary amount of design and infrastructure that went into the making of that thing. I, I'm not going to give him all the credit. I'm sure there's an art director and a designer and a whole team involved, but I 
I was actually quite impressed by how lean and economical the the sort of manifestation of the colored spaces were. And you know, there's there's a kind of certain amount of selfie culture in there because obviously his fans want to see him, you know, being him. But but I think you know it could have could have really been a travesty, and it's not. Yeah, I, yeah, I think um, uh, good artists borrow, great artists steal sort of thing is, uh, <laughs> there's some truth to that. And I think that um, can go to any period of art history. You can go to any film studio and you'll see um, in their um, art department on the director's, in the director's office, you'll find things taped to walls, stuck on bulletin boards that are all really meant to be inspirational. And um, when when it's done well, those become ingredients that then are further transformed. And I think, you know, there are people that will see, see that Drake video who wouldn't have been, obviously, to LACMA or to the Guggenheim. Well, that's a really excellent point because, in fact, it's not Picasso, right? It's not something that maybe or the Mona Lisa or something that the average American non-initiated visual person might immediately say, oh, of course, Terrell. I mean, it's not, it doesn't roll off the tongue as a sort of common thing. But but it does uh, raise this question of, of what it is that we recognize as part of our common visual and cultural vocabulary that we can then think about retrofit work into other visions of art and making that that people can recognize and and I, this makes me think of this story that uh, I recently saw uh, a guy named Grady Hendrix has published a horror novel that looks like an IKEA catalog. Have you seen this thing? So, so th- this is an interesting concept. So you take IKEA, which is if Terrell is rarefied, IKEA, you know, it's now international. It's it's ubiquitous. You see that big blue building with the yellow type, you know, you're there. I mean, they're out there in, in cities all over the world. We all have seen what the instructions look like. They all have these funny Swedish names that no one can pronounce. Um, and every once in a while, it's in the news. A couple of years ago, there was a story. Uh, in the Wall Street Journal about uh, sort of lonely hearts clubs in China of elderly, uh, unattached people who were meeting in these places because in China they notoriously live in smaller apartments because of overcrowding. And so here was this very big opportunity to not only socialize, but to socialize in a place where somebody else had done some pretty nice decorating, even if it was pretty bland. And so, you know, and the government had to get involved and actually find a way to get these lovely 60 and 70 year olds out of their coffee clutches in the, in the little dining room setups in Ikea. Well, this is a different kind of story. But it's it's no less interesting in its sort of co-opting of this common cultural idiom. You know, I think haunted houses with creaking boards and dark rooms and eerie kind of theremin-inflected music are scary, but not really. Yeah, there's something about taking this really kind of like anodyne setting like an Ikea store and making horror happen there. That's what I think Stanley Kubrick understood really well. If you look at like The Shining, there are no dark rooms in The Shining. Everything is like evenly lit, you know, so completely bland. And the horror comes from kind of the vastness of that space, the fact that it's um, unoccupied, the fact that you sort of sense they're, they're, it's an off-season hotel, they're, they're not really supposed to be there. Yeah, so, I, I mean, I think that there's something uh, particularly acute about the sense of terror you feel, not when you're in a spooky haunted house with creaking floorboards and theremin music, but instead when it's happening in the most normal possible places and what place you know i mean the the essence of contemporary normality has got to be an ikea store and it's sort of like you know someone like stanley kubrick has understood that so well he was able all his movies have this kind of curious element of intentional i think intentional boredom in them you know whether it's the boredom of space travel in uh, uh 2001 
or even sort of the boredom of sex and eyes wide shut, the, you know, the, 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 board, the boring bureaucracy of nuclear annihilation and Dr. Strangelove. But, but really, you could, you could say there are a number of filmmakers and, and, and uh, artists, for that matter, whose use of dark, gloomy, but really minimal staged effects are, in fact, much more terrifying. So, no, I've got, I've got a million-dollar idea here, then, for you. It is a horror movie set in a James Terrell exhibition. Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. Our website is designobserver.com. You can find links there to the things we discussed, including that story about how Greenland is melting away. Between episodes, keep up with Design Observer on Facebook and on Twitter. Let us know what you thought of the show and if there's something you want to hear us talk about next time. You can subscribe to The Observatory on iTunes, SoundCloud, or however you take your podcasts. Go to designobserver.com slash theobservatory. That's designobserver.com slash the observatory. And if you're not listening already, please tune in to our other podcast, Design Matters, with Debbie Millman. Her latest guest is our own Michael Beirut. Thanks to Sappy for sponsoring this episode of The Observatory. Teddy Blanks wrote our theme music. Our producer is Blake Eskin. Talk to you soon, Michael. Talk to you soon, Jessica.